All right, in the first hour, we briefly took a second to remember that we spent a couple, two hours talking about typology and how we are going to approach typology in regards to the tabernacle. We talked about how typology, the way we're approaching typology is that typology requires an, an authoritative passage in the New Testament telling us that this is a type. If we don't have that, then it's just everyone's figment of their own imagination, and it's chaos. However, we do realize we have a problem, because even if the New Testament does authorize and state that the tabernacle is a type, well then what does that mean? Does that mean every little detail in the tabernacle is a type? From something being three cubits or four cubits or seven and a half feet tall or whatever the case, to shit them wood, to gold, to silver. Does everything serve as a type? I will say that if we go with that mentality, we're going to find ourselves right back to where? Just making it up, right? So if we're going to say this material is a type of something, we still would need a New Testament verse that does what? That says that. So we, we understand that we're going to approach then typology in a radically different way, but we're going to try to avoid all the problems that creeps into the subject that churches everywhere uses. We're not, we're not going to do, we're, we're going to argue against that. However, as we get into the details of the tabernacle, what are we going to do? We are going to look at all of the suggestions that shittim wood represents this, or that gold represents this, or that wood just in general represents this, because a lot of people say gold represents deity, wood represents humanity, all of the craziness that people say. We're going to at least consider them. We'll view them kind of as a hypothesis. We'll test it, and then most likely, in most cases, we're going to do what? We're going to dismiss it, right? Because unless we have scriptural support. So but that's, that's when we get into the details of the tabernacle. And I know typically when you study the tabernacle, you're just supposed to immediately say, here's what the tabernacle was. Show everyone a picture. And then just go straight into the details saying, this represents this, this represents this, this represents this, this represents this. Everyone sits in the pew going, oh, that's really cool. I never saw that before. That was a good sermon. And then everyone's happy. The only problem is no one actually really studied anything, right? Anything. So um, when we get to the details, we're going we're gonna to take it a different approach. But I don't think we can get to the details. Because when you're reading your Bible and you get to Exodus chapter 24, all of a sudden something strange happens. And I'm not going to go back and read it again. I, I read it in the first hour. We've read it, uh, read, read it in other uh, messages. But in Exodus 24, all of a sudden... They see God and there's this crazy vision and then Moses is called up into the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and it looks like a consuming fire and you're like, what is happening? It's all this spectacle. It just seems to make no sense. And then all of a sudden, God's like, hey, I want you to take an offering. Get this, get this, get this, get this, get this. And you're going to make a sanctuary so that I can dwell among the people. And you're like, what is going on? Like how, why, why all of a sudden does he want to dwell amongst the people? So what we're going, what we are attempting to do, we did it in the first hour, we're going to do this hour. We're trying to identify the why and the how God is dwelling, is going to dwell amongst the people. Because when you're reading your Bible, we know the last time God was dwelling amongst the people was, his, was in Genesis chapter two, one and two right? Part of chapter three, because God is walking in the garden. We know because of their sin, 
they are put out of the garden. And then we have just everything contained. Whenever God kind of shows up, Genesis 11, he's like, I'm going to go down, meaning he's not there. He's going to come down to look at the whole Tower of the Babel situation and, and to, scatter, to scatter them in their languages. You're like, well, wait a minute. That means God's not dwelling amongst them. And you see that throughout the Bible, right? All through Genesis. You get into Exodus. Where is Israel? They're in captivity. God's not obviously dwelling amongst them, right? And so all of a sudden when you get to Genesis or Exodus 25, you're kind of like, what is happening here? Like, why Why is he going to set up this tabernacle? So we got to figure out the why and the how. So that's what we're going to do, which is not what people typically do in this study. But, but I, I just feel like we have to figure it out. So uh, because I have the curiosity to try to figure this out, I know that a lot of people will be like, yeah, who cares? I don't care why. I don't care how, right? I do. But I know I have to do it in a way that makes it still somewhat interesting to other people. So, in the first hour, I gave everyone two very important words. And those two words were perpetual and parentheses. Perpetual parentheses. A perpetual parentheses. Now, the perpetual part is idolatry. Calvin has famously said that human heart is a perpetual idol factory. I disagree with Calvin because I don't believe it's the heart that produces the idols. I believe the human heart is the idol and that all the things we seek, basically this is the way it works. Human beings think that they are God and we seek everything to worship us. We think that we are God. It's based in our sinful nature. We exalt ourselves. So what we have a tendency to do, everything, every relationship, no matter how much you want to romanticize it, no matter how much you want to make it all look wonderful, you're in relationships because they produce something for you. They do something for you. They, they give you something. We, we, we think that we are God and we look to everything and everyone to do what? Meet some need. Satisfy some longing. Fix some desire. We want, we want, we want, we want. And so everything we go after. And this perpetual idolatry started in the garden where Adam and Eve decided that they wanted something. Something looked good to them. Something would make them like unto God, right? It was about them. And so there's a perpetual problem called idolatry. It's a perpetual problem. It has been, it was present in the garden. It was present throughout the Bible. And it is present where today? Inside every single one of us, because we think that we're God and we want everything to serve us. It's just the reality, right? Right? Perpetual problem. Now, where does the parentheses come from? Well, when you're reading the book of Exodus, right? Everything is going, in fact, I'll just read this briefly. I'm trying to review as fast as I can to get everyone on the same page, all right? Just so that everyone understands where we're going here. This is very important, all right? So, um, if chapters 32, or if, if you're, if you're, if chapters 32 through 34 were taken out of the book of Exodus, you take chapters 32 through 34, you remove them from the book of Exodus, uh, there would be an unbroken flow from chapters 25 through 40. 
25 through 40, there would be an unbroken flow if you remove 32 through 34. Because Exodus chapters 32 through 34, they serve as a parenthesis. They're parenthetical. What does that mean? They're set apart. Because if you read 25 through 40, removing 32 through 34, what is uh, 25 through 40 about if you remove 32 through 34? The tabernacle. The tabernacle. The whole thing about, well, why is the tabernacle? Why? Why? Why is that there? Why is that there? Because, again, why, why did God no longer dwell with the people? Because of their idolatry. So now he wants to set up a tabernacle, and he gives all this instruction, but why and how is he going to dwell amongst people? Because they still have the problem. And to emphasize that they still have this problem, guess what the, par- the parenthetical section is about? Idolatry. And you're like, well, wait a minute. If he's going to set up a tabernacle and he's going to dwell among people, the same perpetual problem is present. It's idolatry. And that's 30 chapters 32 through 34. Now, I, now listen, this is very important. Okay, I, I just got to say, I'm, just, I'm trying to review as fast as I can, all right? So this is very important. I believe that everything that's laid out here is a picture of a, of a bigger reality. All right? The Bible begins in Genesis with God dwelling amongst men. Everyone can say, amen. They get thrown out and God is no longer dwelling amongst them because of idolatry. Let's just use the word idolatry. Idolatry, right? Okay, that's a problem. For some weird reason, he decides to set up a tabernacle amongst the very people who are idols. But the Bible ends in the book of Revelation with a tabernacle... The word tabernacle is literally used. What was the verse, uh, Sarah? Re- Revelation 21.3. Everybody can look at it. Revelation 21.3. You can see this. Revelation 21.3. Tell me when you're there. Revelation 21.3. I'll just read it. Revelation 21.3. I'm trying to hurry, trying to hurry. All right, Revelation 21.3. And what do you read? If I can get my Bible to get to that page. Revelation 21, 3, we read, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. It ends with him being with them, right? So how does the Bible begin? God dwelling amongst men. What causes the problem? Idolatry, a perpetual problem, right? Everybody got that? A perpetual problem. Oh, how does the Bible end? God dwelling among them. How is he going to dwell with them in the end? He removed the perpetual problem because he removes the sinful nature. He glorifies and sinful men are judged and then it saved people. He glorifies the sinful nature as God. So the perpetual problem has to be removed before God can dwell amongst men. However, why in the world then is he setting up a sanctuary in Exodus where the perpetual problem exists? Well, in right in Exodus where the perpetual problem exists, there is a parenthesis. And that parenthesis may give us clue to why and the how of the tabernacle. And maybe the why and the how of the tabernacle points to another tabernacle that shows up in the Gospel of John. Because the word became flesh and 
dwelt among us, and the word dwelt there in Greek means to tabernacle. Now, here's the thing. We are currently living in the middle of a perpetual parenthesis. We are between Genesis and we are between Revelation. And during this perpetual parenthesis, we are suffering with idolatry. Right? Maybe the perpetual parentheses that shows up in Exodus gives us an example and sets up the why and the how of the tabernacle. And it's in the tabernacle where we see the picture and how God is going to take care of the perpetual problem. Right? The perpetual parentheses so that he may dwell amongst us in the end. It serves as a broader picture. Now, what we have to do then for the next forever, how much time I have, we are going to try to go through Exodus 32, 33, 34, and part of 35 as fast as we can, but to try to understand maybe the why and the how of the tabernacle in the first place. So when you say you're going to stay in the tabernacle, everybody just says, put up the nice little picture of the tabernacle, right? Oh, look, everyone, there's the tabernacle. See, I show everyone the picture, and I'm like, oh, see, this is this, and this is this, and and then we start going through it, and everybody's like, oh, that was made of this, and that represents this, and everybody loves that. But I, to me, that's of no value if we don't know the why and the how. And the text screams at us, there is a perpetual parenthesis. That perpetual parentheses is one of idolatry. And if you, and if you were to take Exodus 32 through 34 out of your Bible, it would flow perfectly. But there's a perpetual parentheses that shows up. And that perpetual parentheses first shows up in Exodus 32. So first I'm going to read a paragraph summarizing Exodus 32 through 35. Then we're going to start working through Exodus 32, 33, 34, and part of 35. Sounds good? We're going to do a lot of reading. I'm going to do a lot of summarizing. I'm going to be borrowing from uh, an article to try to summarize some of this. Some of this I want to summarize. Some of this we're going to want to read, right? There's a part of me that should just try to summarize it. But I want us to really get this sex amidst or this of sinful people. Then why in the world is he telling Moses to build a tabernacle or a sanctuary? Right? He's going to be dwelling. In, how is this going to be possible? That, like, that to me is the b- bigger question than what does Shittim would represent? Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Um, hang on. Let me look at something really quick. Oh, that's it. Well, I always hate when we get another notification because it tells me that something disconnected, but that's okay. All right. I'm going to ignore that for now. All right. Okay. Hopefully we don't have any problems here. That would be bad, all right? So from the moment Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, the problem has been that a holy God cannot dwell in the midst of a sinful people. Before Moses and the giving of the law, interaction with God was achieved by the offering of a sacrifice. The blood of animals was shed so that God could make a garment to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. Now, again, some people see that, some people don't, but I do believe that they are covered with animal skins. Typically, what's required to get an animal skin Death, okay, so we, we, I think most people would agree with that to some level. But when Israel became a nation, there needed to be some kind of institutional provision for God to dwell among his people. The magnitude of the problem of God's holiness and Israel's sinfulness can be seen in Exodus 32 through 35. So Exodus 32 through 35 seems to magnify which problem? The perpetual problem. And what is the perpetual problem we're going to see here? Idolatry. 
All right, we're going to see idolatry. All right, so let's start in Exodus chapter 32. All right, Exodus chapter 32. We're just going to read verses 1 through 10 to at least get us started, and then we'll read some of the summary here. All right, and trying to read this is going to be problem, problematic because I'm going to want to start doing more than just read it, but we get the idea. All right, everybody's there? Here we go. I know that's a lot to try to cram into a, a, a review, but hopefully we're all there. All right, perpetual parentheses. We're trying to figure out the why and the how of the tabernacle. Right? There is a perpetual parentheses between the garden and revelation. And that perpetual parentheses is us right now. And we are, what's that perpetual parentheses? Human beings who are idolaters, who worship what? Self. Okay. All right. Exodus 32, verse 1. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. Now, immediately, the people want gods. Now, again, they say, let us make gods. I'm going to argue, and I, this is my view on idolatry, differs from almost everyone else. The, who is the real God? Who is the people really acting as God? The people are acting as God. They're, they, are, they think that they are God, and now they're looking for something to do what? And it says to serve them, to make them feel good, to meet a psychological need or an emotional need. I cannot say it enough. So much of Christianity are nothing more than little little people pretending to be God, wanting the God to serve them. We use God. To meet our emotional need. If God said, that's it, I'm not here to do anything for you. No salvation, no nothing. Would you even be here today? No, we wouldn't. Meaning then we have a tendency to do what? We think we're God and we look to God to bow and serve us. And when that God doesn't do what we want, we have a tendency not to like that very much, right? And we see it all the time. We always want our needs met. We, it's always about us, 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 us. Well, things are not going their way, and now what do they want? They want something. And so what does Aaron do? Aaron said unto them, Break off the golden ear- earrings, which are in the ears of your wives, of your sons, and of your daughters, and bring them unto me. All the people break off the golden earrings, which were in their ears, brought them unto Aaron, He received them at their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. They said, this be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Did these gods bring them out of the land of Egypt? No, it did not. Did not. So it seems foolish, but they just want what? Some kind of visual representation. They want something to do what? Satisfy a need, a fear, a concern. They're just looking for anything to meet their need. If God won't meet their need, another God will meet that need. But ultimately, they think that they are God and they're just looking for that which will do what? Serve them. I mean, that's a hard thing to recognize, but it's true, okay? And when Aaron saw it, verse 5, he built an altar before it and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Please note, Tomorrow's a feast to the Lord, all caps, right? 
So they're still referencing the true God, but they're mixing in. In other words, hey, we still want the true God, but we're mixing in these other things because they will, we will, listen, human beings have and we will always do what? We will shape and mold any religion to satisfy and serve which purpose? Our own. Because who is the God we really worship? Us. And we'll utilize religion to benefit us. I mean, that's the, nobody wants to admit that, but it is very, very, very true. And they rose up early on the morning and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said unto Moses, go, get thee down for thy people, which thy brought us out of the land of Egypt. Have what? Corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, these be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let my, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make, uh, I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. Basically, what is God saying in verse 10? I'm going to start over. I'm going to, I'm going to get rid of all of them. I'm going to start over. Now, this whole thing seems bizarre, right? Because why did God start before this parenthesis? He's going to dwell among them. And now all of a sudden, instead of dwelling amongst them, he goes from, I'm going to dwell amongst them to, I'm going to destroy them. What is going on? How do we get from here? The whole thing seems bizarre. And this is where textually you should stop and go, wait a minute, what's happening? Did God, when he said he was going to dwell amongst them, did he not know they were going to commit the idolatry? And the answer would be, yes, he knew. So clearly, this is all being set up as a picture, right? There's, there, there's something happening here and it serves as the whole issue. God to dwell amongst people, there's gotta be a why and a how that he's ever going to be allowed to because there's a perpetual problem and that perpetual problem is idolatry, idolatry, right? Now, one source describes it this way. Moses had been at the top of Mount Sinai for many days, communing with God and obtaining the covenant God was making with the nation of Israel. The people concluded that Moses had been out of sight for too long, and so they persuaded Aaron to create an image of God that they could see and worship and who would go before them as they made their way to the promised land. Aaron had the people uh, contribute some of their gold jewelry, perhaps some of the jewelry they obtained from the Egyptians. From this gold, Aaron fashioned a golden calf, which the people worshipped, resulting in a drunken orgy. God told Moses what was going on back in the Israelites' camp and instructed them to get back down to the camp because the Israelites were already practicing idolatry. He threatened to wipe out this stiff-necked people and to create a new nation for Moses. But he did so in a way that left the door open for Moses to object and to plead for mercy for the people. That's very important. All right? I'm going to, now I'm going to, remember, I I love to take things and then go our own direction. So let's just make sure we understand this. All right. In in Genesis, God dwelt where? Amongst his creation. What caused the problem? Okay, I'm going to put idolatry. I'm just going to stress idolatry. 
All right? How does the book end? God dwelling amongst his creation. The problem, the, obviously, for God to dwell amongst his creation at the end, he has to deal with the perpetual problem, which is idolatry, which means he has to deal with our sin. He deals with our sin through what Christ did, right? And then by removing our sinful nature. Okay, but in the meantime, we're in the middle of a perpetual parenthesis, right? There's a parenthesis between that, everything in between, right? Wouldn't it be great, great if we could just go, God dwelt amongst men? God will always dwell amongst men, and there's not that long parenthesis? Would it, would it be great? But in Exodus, there's this same parenthesis shows up. God's like, I'm going to dwell with you. And you're like, well, what is going on? Because he's giving all of the wonderful instructions. He's given them the law. He's now given them the wonderful instructions to build a sanctuary. And then all of a sudden, in the midst of all of that, the people are doing what? Idolatry. The perpetual problem shows up. Okay, so he's like, you've got to go down. Now, this is very important. Okay, look at uh, back to Exodus 32. Look what happens in verse 11. And Moses... Besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? This is very important. You may want to write this down. You may want to write this down. All right. This perpetual problem, we see the problem. Yes. Now, we still want to know how we're going to get to God dwelling amongst them. Right. We we still got to see how we're going to get there. Just write down. They have what? What, are the, what, what, what's, what is Moses serving as in this particular situation, at least starting right here? Oh, someone say that? He's serving as a mediator. Between whom? God and the people. Okay, he's serving somewhat as a mediator. What else is he serving as? An advocate. Okay, that's pretty good. I like that word. Okay, so let's write these words down. Moses at this point is getting ready to serve as what? A mediator between basically whom? God and the people. I mean, there's no way to get around it, right? God wants to do what to the people? Destroy them. Moses steps in and says, whoa, 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 wait, 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 wait. That immediately puts him where? I think it's fair to say a mediator, right? I know someone's like, there's only one mediator between God and man, and the man is Christ Jesus. I understand that. In this narrative, there's no way to get around. He is serving as a mediator. There's just no way to get around it, is he not? Right? Okay, not only is he a mediator, you said he's an advocate. He's, what is he advocating for? For them not to be destroyed. What else is he doing? A mediator, an advocate, an advocate starts with an I. An I-N. An I-N-T. An I-N-T-E-R. <laughs> interceding or an intercessor. Right? He's inter- does he, is he not interceding on the behalf of the people? What does intercession mean? He's pleading on God on behalf of someone. All right? So, which fits with the mediator and the advocate, right? So he's mediating. He's an advocate. And he's an intercessor. That, that's very important because we want to figure out how is God going to dwell amongst these people? Well, I think it's kind of interesting that these three things are showing up, is it not? I think it's kind of interesting. No, nobody else has seen where this is going? Somebody here should probably go, ooh, ah, 
right? Okay, all right. All right, here we go. So Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites. So now let's look at Exodus 32, 11 through 14. I just read it a little bit, or a little bit of it, but let's read all of it. Exodus 32, verse 11. And Moses besought the Lord. See, he besought the Lord. If he's, besought, if, he's beseek, if he's seeking the Lord, or he besought the Lord, he's doing so on the behalf of whom? The people, which is called intercession. If he was doing it for himself, that would be, right? Okay, all right, everybody remember that? Okay, besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot uh, against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, for mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath and repent from the evil against thy people. Now what's his basic argument here? What will people say? (laughs) What will people, I'm not saying it's, yeah, I'm not saying it's a good argument, but he's like, remember those Egyptians, those, you know, ungodly pagans, what will the pagans say? Okay, whether it's a good argument, it's the argument that's being made, right? Agreed? Right? Then, but look at verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self and said unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven and all the land, and I've spoken of will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it forever. So immediately... Now, you can argue his first argument may not be very good, but his second argument is really good. What's his second argument here? You made a covenant. And you swear by... And how did he swear by himself? Everybody remember how he made the covenant with Abraham? Abraham went... Night-night. Right? And then they cut the... Remember, they took the animals, cut, uh, they sacrificed them and cut them in half. And typically... And for, to make a covenant, you would grab, like, you would grab, I would grab her hand, like if we made a covenant, I'd grab her hand and we would walk through the cut uh, animals. Now, teenagers don't think that that's what you need to do with your boyfriend or girlfriend because, you know, it's romantic. It's romantic cutting animals by half. Okay, but, but they cut the animals by half. Somebody like, oh, that would be so romantic. We'll, we'll, cut, we'll sacrifice the cat and cut it in half and walk between it. Okay, no, don't, don't do that. Okay, but you get the idea. They cut the animal in half and they, they would typically walk through it together making a covenant. The only th- situation when you go back to, ex- to Genesis and read the story, only one person is walking through it. Abraham is sound asleep. So God makes a covenant with himself. It's an amazing covenant. And we and remember when we talked about this in dispensationalism, we call this the the Abrahamic covenant or and the dispensation of promise. Now we and remember we have to separate the covenant and the dispensation. Why do we have to separate them? A dispensation is a test. They failed the test. How does Schofield believe they failed the test? That in Exodus after Moses went up the first time with God, he is given the tablets. He comes down, he tells everyone, here's the law. And they say, we will do. And Schofield says, they should never have said that. They should have said, we can't. We want to, but we can't. But they said, we will. And he said at that point, they left the dispensation of promise to accept the dispensation of law. But even though they lost the dispensation of promise, 
Schofield makes an argument they did not lose the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. And that Abrahamic covenant made a promise to the nation of Israel. Now that, that promise to the nation of Israel is not only will they become a great nation, they're going to get a land. Right? Very, very, very important, all right? Now, remember, this is very important. If you believe that covenant is a covenant made with the nation of Israel, then we, if you, if you, to believe that that covenant goes away doesn't mean make it a covenant of grace, does it? If you say that they lost it, now what many, um, those who be all millennial or those in the reform camp will love to say, well, they never lost it. It was just never made with them. It was made with believers. It was not made with Israel. But that makes absolutely no sense because it specifically states, well, I'm going to make a nation out of thee and I'm going to give you land. So that makes no sense. So then they have to interpret land as not being land, Israel not being land. It becomes a problem. But it's a beautiful picture. If God makes a covenant with the people and he's going to keep that covenant no matter how many times the perpetual problem shows up. Because does the perpetual problem show up constantly? Yes. But how is God ever going to dwell amongst them? Well, that's how the parentheses ends. But in the meantime, what does Moses say? He wants to remind him of what? The covenant. The covenant. Meaning, don't destroy them. All right? What verse did we stop at? 12. Is it 12? Okay. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah, verse 13. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and, uh, and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou swearest by thine own self and saidest unto them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven. All this land that I have spoken will I give unto your seed, and they shall inherit it. They shall inherit it forever. Okay, I know we, I know we had a big problem with this one time in the church, but how long is forever? Forever, right? Meaning Israel's supposed to get the... Land. So, what is Moses' whole argument? Now, he made the other argument. You could talk about whether it was good or not. But this argument's really sound. He's like, you made a promise. You can't kill them. Right? But he's serving as what? Mediator and advocate. He's interceding. All right? Does that make sense? And then it says, the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. All right? Everybody see that? Okay, now I'm going to read from, again, a summary of all of what we just read. All right, Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites. See, please note intercession, interceding. All right, he did not deny that they had acted wickedly, nor did he petition God on the basis that they would do better in the future. Is that not important? He didn't deny what they did, and he did not say what? They'll do better. They'll do better. He argued on the basis of God's character and his covenant with Abraham and his descendants. He appealed to God for the sake of his glory. The Israelites were God's people, those he had chosen and just recently had delivered from Egyptian bondage. He had promised to bring the people into the land of Canaan. If God failed to do this, it would reflect badly on his ability to fulfill his promise. God's glory would be diminished in the minds of the surrounding nations. Thus, God should forgive his people and bring them into the promised land just 
just as he had promised he would do. His appeal did not really change God's mind. In truth, it underscored God's character and his covenant promises. In other words, the outcome of Moses' mediation, what word did they just use? Mediation was that God didn't change anything. He gave Moses the opportunity to plead Israel's case and to declare the only valid basis for his petition. And then God did just as he had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. All right? Everybody see that? A beautiful picture is taking place, right? Remember, we're in the middle of a parenthesis. What's going on in the parentheses? Idolatry. All right? How? How? Now, we still haven't got the tabernacle even built yet because this is all being, the instructions of the tabernacle is being interrupted by this parenthesis, right? Okay, but what's taking place? In the midst of this idolatry, Moses serves as a mediator, advocate, and an intercessor. Everybody got that? Everybody see that? And the whole basis of everything that he's pleading is on based on God's promise and God's character. This is very, very important. Even if we can apply this uh, even up to ourselves. When Moses approaches God on behalf of the people, he doesn't deny what they have done. And he doesn't say that they're going to do better. Whenever we approach God because of our own sin and our own flaws, we don't approach God denying what we've done. We acknowledge what we've done, but we don't sit there making promises that we will do better. Because guess what we do if we make any promise that we will do better? We're lying to ourselves because even if we stop one sin, we're going to replace it with 15 others. So what's the, why does God forgive us? On the basis of us doing better? No, God forgives us on the basis of his character and his promise that if we confess our sins, faithful and just forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from, not on the basis of what we do, could do, should do, may do, try to do, promise to do, but on the basis of what Christ did and his promise. See a similarity? See a similarity? All right. Well, hang on. Let's see what happens here. Now go to Exodus, go to Exodus 32, verse 15. Now what happens in 15? Exodus 32, 15. All right. So far, so good. Everybody there? Exodus 32, 15. And Moses turned and went down from the mount, and the two tables of the testimony were in his hand, and the tables were written on both their sides, on the one side and on the other. They were written... And the tables were the work of God, and the writings was the writing of God graven upon the tables. And when Joshua heard the noise of the people, they shouted, he said unto Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. Oh, something crazy is going on, right? So, I mean, they're coming back, and obviously the people are just absolutely out of control. Absolutely out of control. And he said, is not the voice of them that should for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but the noise of them that sing do I hear, all right? So we know when it says sound of war, it's not war because they're singing, right? In other words, it's just what? It's loud. It's just chaos. Complete chaos is going on. They're having a party, they're yelling, screaming. Like, what is happening? You just know before you get there that something is happening. And he's coming back to see the situation, right? Okay. All right. Well, as we have one, one source said a drunken orgy. Okay. And it came to pass as soon as he came nigh into the camp that he saw the calf. 
and the dancing. And Moses' anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands and break them beneath the mount. All right, he's mad. Moses is angry. Moses is furious. And he took the calf which they had made, he burnt it in the fire, ground it to powder, strawed it unto the water, and made the children of Israel drink of it. Okay, he's, he's, not, he's ticked off. He's t- ticked off. And almost in a roundabout way, what is he tr- I wonder why he would ground it up and make them drink it. I think he's making them like they're going to partake and drink of their own sin. Like they're, they're, they're going to partake of this. Right? But once again, this is a part of the perpetual parentheses. We're in the middle of the parentheses. This is, this is our lives. Perpetually and idolatry. Right? Now, what, what's going to happen here? Well, let me read now a summary of this. Okay? Well, we're almost done with the chapter, right? We're almost, let's go to verse 21. We'll just read the whole chapter. And Moses said unto Aaron, What did this people unto thee that thou hast brought so great a sin upon them? So Moses looks to whom? To Aaron. Like, what's the problem here? What, what's going on? I, I leave? And what happened? Okay. And then what did he say? What, what, is, what does he say? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. Thou knowest the people that they are set on mischief. He immediately does what? Blames the people. Blame. Now, please note, are you seeing something similar? Does this not sound like Genesis? Remember, the, the parentheses really starts where? When the people sin, when Adam and Eve sin in the garden. And the parentheses goes all the way to the end. This is just an, a parentheses within a parentheses. It's a, per, per, a perpetual parentheses. But that all of this is going to demonstrate because when you look at this, you still have to be asking yourself, well, how do we get the tabernacle? All right, well, let's see what's going to happen. Now, what did the people say? For they said unto me, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses and the man that brought us up out of of Egypt, we want not what is become of him. Now, in a roundabout way, what is he doing in verse 23? I think he's kind of blaming Moses. Right? Hey, he's blaming the people, but he's like, you, you knew the people you left me with, and where were you anyway? Right? And I said unto them, whatsoever hath any gold, whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. <laughs> I threw in the, 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 the jewelry, and boom, here comes popping out a golden calf. Now, we, we laugh at it. We laugh at it. But come on. Is that not our, the human heart? Right? We want everything to serve us because we are the God that we truly worship. And then whenever any flaw, any fault or flaw could be given to us, we immediately do what? We distract and we deny because guess what? Guess what? Guess what? Failure... Why do you think failure and uh, why do you think failure is so hard for us to take? Because it goes after our own pride, right? Goes after our own pride. We don't like to be humiliated. We don't like to be wrong, right? Nobody likes to be wrong. So we make excuses. They they make some excuses here, right? And when Moses saw that the people were naked, okay, for Aaron had made them naked un- unto their shame among their enemies. Please note, so these people are doing what? 
They're drinking. They're running around. They have no clothes on. It's not been very long before they came out of of Babylonian, Egyptian captivity, and now they're running around a golden calf. And it wasn't too long ago that they said what? We obey every law. Oh, yeah, they've seen everything. But it just shows. I, I can't, let me make it very clear. This is very important. Listen, listen, listen. Very important principle here. Human depravity is far greater than the power of miracle. Human depravity is more powerful than the power of law. Human depravity is more powerful than literally seeing God. You can see God, you can experience a miracle, and you can post the Ten Commandments in every courthouse and classroom in the world, and none of that's going to fix human depravity. Unless you don't believe in human depravity and you're a semi-Pelagian or a Pelagian, then you don't even believe in human depravity. But if you believe in human depravity, the Bible proves it. None of that fixes their problem. They have a perpetual problem. Right? Now look at verse 26. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And all the sons of Levites gathered themselves together unto him. And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side. Go in and out of the gate. Uh, from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. For Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today, and the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brethren, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. That is a horrifying picture. Now, we're still trying to figure out the why and the how of the tabernacle. But in the middle of this parentheses, right, 32 to 34, what have we seen? We've seen a mediator, amen, an advocate, and an intercessor. Now, what else are we seeing? Judgment. Judgment. Sin has to be judged. Sin has to be judged. And whenever judgment occurs, what is the judgment of sin? Death. Now, nobody likes that story. That's a horrifying story. People are killing their own relatives. Horrible story. In fact, if you read that story, some person may want it banned from the public library. Okay? I'm just saying, you take some of the things in the Bible, that's pretty serious stuff. You've got a bunch of naked people running around and getting drunk and who knows doing what, and now you've got people slaughtering each other. Pretty serious content, right? But it it demonstrates that there's no messing around. And then look what happens. And it came to pass on the morrow that Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up into the Lord pre-adventure. I shall make an atonement for your sin. Oh, are we getting, are you getting a picture, ladies and gentlemen? What do you need? What is needed for God to dwell amongst men? This is, we haven't even got to the tabernacle yet, but what is going to be required for a tabernacle to be built? Everybody ready? You're going to need a mediator. You're going to need... 
an advocate, you're going to need an intercessor, you're going to need. There's going to have to be judgment. There's going to have to be judgment of some sort, and there's going to have to be an atonement. There's going to have to be some kind of atonement, some kind of covering, some kind of payment. Are you getting an idea how all of this fits into where? The tabernacle. Thank you very much. This is all pointing to the tabernacle before the tabernacle. See, everyone thinks that the instructions for the tabernacle is just all of that long list of, well, shittim wood. It's got to be this tall. I think that the parentheses is really giving us the real things needed if there's ever going to be a tabernacle that dwells among men. Now, please note, this tabernacle, we believe, ultimately pictures something greater, right? So how, listen, how do you get from Genesis to Revelation? Do you need a mediator? Yes. Do you need an advocate? Yes. Do you need someone interceding? Yes. Do you, will judgment have to occur? Yeah. Hey, like it or not, judgment has to occur. Look, judgment upon sin is going to occur. The, cho- the choice is that who was, who's going to be judged for sin? There are two options. You or someone else. And there's going to have to be an atonement. Well, guess what? All of those things that we're seeing in Exodus 32, and we're in 33, are we in 33 now? Yeah. Or are we still in 32? Okay, we're about to be in 33. We're still in 32, okay? I, I'm, we're moving so quick. I told you we'd get done with all these chapters this morning. Okay, all right. All, everything in Exodus 32. Let me make it. Okay, are we ready for this? Everybody ready for this? Okay. In Exodus 32, what is, what is Moses serves as a mediator. And John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us. That person who tabernacled among us is Christ Jesus. And who is the mediator between God and man? Christ Jesus. Oh, there we go. All right, wait, an advocate. Is Jesus Christ our advocate? Yes, we have an advocate. Does he live to make intercession for us? Oh, so far, so good. The wrath of God. In fact, he serves as what? What's What's the word? Propitiation, meaning he satisfied God's wrath by paying for it. Oh, and did he, did he make atonement for us? Everything in, in there. And guess what? Are all of those factors that we're seeing in Exodus 32, are they not parts and elements of the tabernacle? All of this is right. If God is going to dwell amongst sinful men, all of these elements must be present. The tabernacle, we're going to see these elements, but before the tabernacle is constructed, because right now God is in the midst of giving Moses the instructions, right? And then this gets all interrupted with this weird parentheses that you have a tendency to go, why is this even here? Now you see why it's here, right? Does that make sense? Oh, we're going to run out of time. All right, we have to finish this, all right? I have to finish this, okay? Uh, what verse do we stop? Uh, we, we'll go to verse 20. Well, we read all of that, uh, we read the third, we're in 30. Uh, and it came to pass on the morrow, and Moses said unto the people, you have sinned a great sin, now I will go up unto the Lord preadventure, I shall make an atonement for, uh, for your sin. And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, oh, the people have sinned a great sin and have made them gods of gold. Yet now if thou will forgive their sin, and if not blot me, and if not 
Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book which thou hast written. What does he do? He offers himself. He offers himself. Hey, don't, look, Lord, don't destroy them. If you got to destroy someone, destroy me. That's insane. They're like, that's got, that's got to make you stop and go, there's something going on in this parentheses that everyone overlooks. Is that not the whole point of the tabernacle in some ways? What's one of the things that, what is one of the key things that happens at the tabernacle? Do what? Sacrifice. A sacrifice. And what happens with the sacrifice? You take a lamb. You cut its throat. It dies. So you don't have to. Moses is like, hey, 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 hey. Get rid of me if you have to. Get rid of me. Do you think you would be able to say that? Can you imagine? Now, I'm not saying this is perfect. Just imagine. Let's say Bobby commits some horrible sin. Some bad sin, right? Some, who knows what he did? Something horrible. It's embarrassing. It's humiliating. It's shameful. It's disgusting. It's horrible. Everyone's appalled by it, right? And it's going to have to be presented before the church. And so Bobby has to stand here. He has to acknowledge what he's done. And, and the church is determining what to do to him. And then Mr. Goodlett stands up and says, like, no, 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 no. Punish me. Not him. Now, first we'd look at Mr. Goodlett and probably go, what are you doing? But that's, that's the picture. We, we're not very good at living that out. Because we would sit there going, can you believe what Bobby did? I wonder how Diane feels about this. Oh, it's so bad for the kids. We would be talking like that. Nobody would be saying, I'll suffer for the person. Moses stands up before the people and says, do what? Blot me out. That's, that's the only way. The only way God can ever dwell amongst men is that something has to be blotted out for, on the behalf of the sinful men so that God can dwell in the midst of them. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Therefore now I go, lead the people unto the place of which I have spoken unto thee. Behold, my angel shall go before thee. Nevertheless, in the day which I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And the Lord plagued the people because they made the calf which Aaron made. He tries to intercede. Now, please note, what does God say here? He tells us to take the people somewhere. Well, look what God does. Does he say, I'm going to go with them? No. He says, he's not going with them. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What's going on? Because before the parentheses, he says he's going to make a sanctuary. How are we going to get to the sanctuary? That's the whole issue. Well, now he's like, go, 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 just go. But I'm going, to, I'm going to send the angel with him. But he's going to plague them. There's going to be judgment. There's going to be chastisement. 
Moses tried to intercede. But now wait, we have to stop the story here because we're out of time. But I want to just, do you see the picture that's developing? Moses goes up to get the instructions, right? And he's being told how to build what? A tabernacle. In the midst of that, what occurs in 32 through 34? A parenthesis occurs. That parenthesis is all about what? Idolatry, which is a perpetual problem. Somehow in this parenthesis, we are being given the why and the how of a sanctuary. And we're being given a picture that points to something far greater than Israel and their sanctuary. We're being given a picture of something that paints how us as sinful men who are thrown out of the presence of God because of our idolatry and our sin, how in the world, when I get to Revelation, can God ever dwell amongst us? And what is needed is what is needed right here. And what is needed is we need a a mediator. We need an advocate. We need someone who will intercede. We need someone who will take on judgment. And we need atonement. Moses serves as this. But it all points to, and the tabernacle is going to point to this in greater detail, but all of this points to one who will come to tabernacle amongst us, which is Jesus Christ, who serves as our mediator, our advocate, our intercessor, who takes judgment upon himself and makes atonement. The parentheses deals with the perpetual problem that points to all of the problem we all have. We're all idolaters. We're all little gods thinking that everything around us is to do what? To serve us. And that problem will only be dealt with by what? An advocate, a mediator, an advocate, an intercessor. A judgment has to occur and an atonement. Does everybody see that? All right. We'll have to stop there. And what chapter do we have next? We have chapter 33. Because now they've got to resume the journey, right? We've got to go on a journey. Now, we still want to know how we're going to get to what? The sanctuary. Because they're going on a journey and is God with them? Not in the, He sent an angel. He sent a representative, but he's still not dwelling in the midst of them. That's what we'll have to get to. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, as we try to take this picture apart, We pray that we we would see our own sin, our own failure, and the glorious, glorious gospel of what Christ did for us. Forgive us for our sin, but let us us find hope, comfort, and rest in the fact that we have, in Christ Jesus, we have a mediator, we have an advocate, we have an intercessor, we have someone who paid for our judgment, and we have atonement. Let us find rest in that. And we thank Christ, and in his name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.